At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Bitcoin's wild ride. As the rebound in prices continues, we're going to speak with the CEO of Grayscale about the recent price swings, the Fed's concern about stable coins, and Grayscale's push to become an ETF. We have the latest on that. Plus, a blue chip check from American Express to Intel to Apple, even Microsoft. We have some big members of the Dow making headlines and making moves. We've got the news and the trade on all of them straight ahead. And up in the air, the CEO of Alaska Airlines joins us for an exclusive interview about earnings, the state of travel, and the future of travel across the U.S. But we do begin with the markets this hour. Dom Chu is here with the latest. A lot of those travel and leisure stocks, the reopening trade helping to power the bounce off the lows that we saw from Monday. The markets right now are taking a breather. The Dow Industrials call it flat on the day so far, just a tiny bit to the downside. The S&P 500, 43.60 the last trade there. Again, almost right at the flat line. And then the Nasdaq is outperforming, if you will, only up by two-tenths of 1%, 14,656 the last trade there. As for some of the companies in the news so far today, One thing that these companies have in common, Microsoft, Oracle, Alphabet, Adobe, Megacap Technology and Communication Services, all up either fractionally or pretty decently right now in the day. These all, by the way, I get to put four stars up here. Each of these companies has hit a record high in trading so far today. So that Megacap Technology trade that you were just talking about, even components of the Dow are doing really well in today's trade. And then Domino's Pizza. The best performing stock in the S&P 500, up 14%. Year-to-date, it brings its total up to up 39. Why? They came out with a better-than-expected report on earnings and revenues, and their comparable store sales continue to go higher in the U.S. And what's driving it, Kelly? New menu items. I don't know if you've tried the cheeseburger pizza or chicken taco <laughs> pizza at Domino's they yet. They like some gluten-free I have, stuff, I right? have not yet, but I, 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 I apparently... That's what's driving a lot of the new sales over places like Domino's. A 13% move is a huge one for Domino's, which is now almost 40% year-to-date. Dom, thank you very much. Speaking of big moves, the price of Bitcoin is rebounding from Monday's big drop below 30K. In fact, it's now on pace for its third positive week in four. Institutional interest is still strong. And J.P. Morgan is now reportedly going to let wealth management clients access crypto funds like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. My next guest is the CEO of Grayscale, which is also moving forward with plans to turn the trust into an ETF as soon as they get the green light from the SEC. Still, the space is already getting more crowded as GlobalX yesterday filed its own application for a Bitcoin ETF. For more, let's bring in Michael Sonnenschein. He is the CEO of Grayscale. Michael, it's great to have you. Are you surprised the SEC hasn't figured this out yet? Thanks for having me. You know, Kelly, we've been in active dialogue with the SEC dating all the way back to 2016. They remain highly engaged with the industry and market participants like Grayscale, 
We continue to believe that an ETF is really a matter of when, not a matter of if. And certainly over time, as the market matures, we will see those moves towards Bitcoin ETFs, including the conversion of GBTC to an ETF. And we know that you guys have made moves with BNY Mellon to really kind of set this up. So um, I guess my question is, you guys are sort of the first, the biggest mover in this space right now. I mean, so big that whether you're trading at a premium or discount to net asset value is said to be one of the biggest movers of, of the Bitcoin price itself. So you're huge in this space. What happens as others, including some really well-known names like Kathy Woods, also file ETFs and presumably could all be available on the market? Well, we really believe a rising tide lifts all boats. The Grayscale team is really hard at work on getting ready for an ETF conversion. You know, working with trusted, long-standing service providers like BNY is just one more step on our path towards eventually becoming an ETF. And ultimately, we believe that the digital asset ecosystem will continue to mature. And you'll see not only Bitcoin ETFs, but you'll see ETFs based on other, other digital assets as well. What do you think the biggest attraction is for a Bitcoin ETF? Is it kind of tax efficiency? In other words, if you're buying, you know, the underlying itself, um, as opposed to trading with the ETF, you might run into more issues there. Or maybe just the clunkiness of buying and selling. It still takes a while. You know, it's not easy to execute in bigger sizes. Sure. Um, who has the you biggest know, interest in, in access to these Bitcoin ETF products? I think it really speaks to the heart of, of what we're doing at Grayscale. Crypto, although it's, you know, super developed and is attracting a lot of interest from Wall Street and retail investors alike, Accessing crypto remains a challenge, where to buy it, how to transfer it, store it, and safekeep it. And so investors looking to either Grayscale products or eventually ETFs will really give them that familiar and ease of accessibility around an asset whose characteristics may look and feel a lot different than the way they may access stocks, bonds, ETFs, and other investment products. Do you think that stablecoins now present a systemic risk to Bitcoin and one that may frustrate those who watched uh, Bitcoin sort of in its first uh, initiations now fall subject to either leverage or shadow banking or whatever you want to call it uh, to the kind of yield games, if you want to even go that far, that are attracting a lot of people into the space for those yield products, but now are creating a lot of concern about their viability and may even prompt the Fed to intervene and replace them with some kind of central bank digital coin. Well, what we're hearing from our clients now is a trend towards diversification within their crypto portfolios. And so while a few, maybe a couple of years ago, you would have asked me this question, everyone's first foray into this asset class was Bitcoin or Ethereum. But certainly now there's an increased appetite for looking at stable coins, looking at DeFi, looking at the confluence of digital assets along with you know, gaming or file storage. And so I think a lot of investors are getting excited about all the new and differentiated use cases that are popping off around digital assets and stable coins are, you know, no, you know, no uh, exception to that rule either. Michael, one final question just about Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves. Uh, you know, we've talked about how important your products are to some of the flows in this space. Can you give us some insight um, as to what demand looks like? You're trading it obviously at a big discount to net asset value right now. What would remedy that situation? Um, and kind of what do you foresee as the major drivers of the price action as we get into the back half of the year? Yeah, so, so Kelly, you're referring to the fact that Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, uh, ticker symbol GBTC, is trading at a discount to its net asset value today. And what we're seeing is actually a lot of investors, in particular institutional capital, stepping into GBTC at a discount. 
The reason that they're doing so is because they have a long-term conviction for their Bitcoin exposure, and capital deployed at a discount will actually allow them to control or own more Bitcoin than they would if they were you know, deploying that capital into the spot market. Ultimately, we do think that the product will trend back towards its net asset value, and certainly when GBTC converts to an ETF, in that format, there will be arbitrage mechanisms that are inherently built into those types of products that will arbitrage away any discounts or premiums and see the product trade really close to net asset value. Yeah, so in the meantime, we wait for the next moves from the SEC, perhaps as they look to resolve all of the outstanding questions about crypto. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Michael Sonnenschein of Grayscale. Now, from the vanguard to the old guard, let's get a check on some of the biggest blue chip stocks all in the news today. Next week is the busiest week of earnings season. But first, we're going to hear from a few Dow components this week. And one of them is the best performer in the index in 2021. Any guesses? It's American Express. Though Goldman Sachs is right on its heels vying for the top spot, AXP is up over 40 percent year to date. But as the fintech competition heats up, can it hold on to the gains? We'll delve into that. Moving on to another Dow stock, Microsoft reports Tuesday after the bell. It's up 28 percent this year. There's a new street high price target on the stock today, but we'll get into all of that in a moment. Next up is Intel, the company announcing a partnership with an Indian company to provide 4G and 5G networks there today. As the company works to regain its footing under new CEO Pat Gelsinger, the stock is hanging on to about a 12 percent gain this year. It also reports tonight. And finally, Apple. It reports next Tuesday, but get this, it's actually trailing Intel this year. Shares are only up 11% since January, but some on the street are anticipating strong results next week. Canaccord expects solid demand for iPhones and Macs and hiked its price target to 175 today. So here to drill down on all of these stocks, let's welcome in CNBC's own John Fort, Gina Sanchez, the CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor, and Todd Gordon, Managing Director for TradingAnalysis.com and also a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you guys all here. Let's kick things off with American Express. Todd, how can they stay ahead of the pack? Uh, the stock looks great. I think they have a good valuation, trading 22 times uh, forward earnings, and they've beat expectations handily the last two quarters. Uh, Kelly, they're, they're, they restructured their platinum card, and that's preferred by travelers. And obviously, as the economy is reopening, and hopefully the Delta variant doesn't uh, gain more momentum, they should see a boom in that travel department. They also uh, change their benefits and rewards uh, on that travel card. So uh, I expect AXP's performance to continue. John, do you think they have to be looking over their shoulder at the payments innovation that's taking place? Well, I, I do think they have been for a while. And uh, things like the cabbage acquisition uh, allow them entree into that space. But more, it's just serving that core customer uh, and probably not taking their eye off the ball too much with all the fintech hype. Some of it is long-term important, but not all of it. Gina, would you be a buyer of AXP here? So AXP actually has a lot of tailwinds that are just broad with, with regard to the reopening. Everything about what they're doing in terms of making their forays into further fintech ventures or even just servicing their core business, um, all of those things are benefiting from the fact that the economy, even with the Delta reopen with the Delta variant, is still reopening, and we're seeing such and you know increased demand that a that AXP has to benefit. Incredible to look at that chart. A, just a straight line up into the right year to date. Let's move along and talk about Microsoft, which is hitting its own all-time high today after getting a vote of confidence over its city. The firm hiking its price target on the stock from 310 to 378. 
Microsoft's at 284 right now. That price target is a new street high. It's City's favorite in mega cap software. This year, it's also the third best performer of the blue chips and the best performing tech company in the Dow. What are your thoughts on this one, Todd? Uh, how do you not like Microsoft? I mean, the stock, you look at it, look at a chart. I'll go to the technicals for a second. You look at a summer log chart, the chart just goes straight up. It's not a trading stock. You just hold it. So technology led by Microsoft has been rotating in since mid-May. So tech has come back and it's being led by uh, software. So watch that. So, I mean, Microsoft's hitting on all cylinders. You know, it's got productivity with Office. It's got cloud computing with Azure personal computers with Windows and Xbox. The IT budgets are coming back. Corporates are spending. And I think the work from home trend is here to stay. People need stronger machines and, and more capabilities to perform their tasks. Uh, fundamentally, uh, free, free cash flow of Microsoft on a quarterly basis was anywhere from 8 to $12 billion. They just bumped up to $17 billion last quarter. So really strong move there. Looking, uh, thinking to make, make about a dollar ninety per share, which is up thirty percent year over year. Uh, again, Microsoft is another stock that just you hold. Is there anything, Gina, that could change the the huddle mentality when they report next week? Well, you know, I mean, you look at their two largest segments. Their two largest segments are cloud computing um, and gaming, surprisingly, um, and those make up you know thirty plus percent each of the revenue. And so that's really where you have to look for the outlook for Microsoft. And I think it's going to be hard for them to stumble just because so many things came up. They were already on a trend uh, to grow that cloud computing segment. And then the pandemic hit and work from home. And now this hybrid work model is starting to take root. Business continuity became an issue. And all of those things actually play right to Microsoft's core strengths. Um, so, you know, if you're watching these earnings, you're watching what they're saying about cloud and gaming. All right. And since this one's relatively uncontroversial, John, I'd like to talk about one that is a little more controversial. It's Intel. Uh, the chipmaker is on deck to report its own earnings in just a few hours. A huge moment of truth for CEO Pat Gelsinger. John Ford, what do you think expectations are going into the results this afternoon? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a moment of truth. It is important, especially to, to see how margins are doing and color around uh, supply in chips. But we've got to remember, investors have to remember that also on Monday, Intel's going to be talking about process technology and the fabs and sort of their vision technologically going forward. Now, a lot of investors are waiting till November and sort of the analyst meeting to, to form their opinions about where the stock goes from here. But this technology piece that we're getting over the next few days, partly in the earnings commentary and then partly on Monday, I think is important for anybody who's trying to get ahead of whatever's coming. I'm going to be talking to uh, Pat Gelsinger uh, today. You can see it tomorrow for, for insight on that, too. But that's particularly important here. Got to remember, they're up against a bunch of stuff, not only the chip issues overall, but tough competition from AMD and NVIDIA. And then this foundry strategy that a lot of people have doubts about. So, you know, investors want to hear uh, details around that plan and that it's going to work. And Todd, last week, it was interesting to watch reports about Intel looking at global foundries. And in John's own interview with the global yeah. foundry CEO, he said, no, no, it's <laughs> pretty emphatically. Uh, investors, when they thought about the deal, even speculatively, weren't really thrilled. They thought it might be a little bit of a distraction, might be margin dilutive, whatever you have, that it might just be another sort of costly way of having to double down on this new strategy. So from a trader's perspective, what do you think about the stock? Uh, from a trading point of view, uh, it's dead money, specifically in the semi. So it, the stock was trading at $55 back in May of 2018. That's wow. where it is now. If you compare that to the semiconductor holders SMH, it went from 105 up to 255 right now. 
the global foundries is interesting. So it's on the table for 30 billion. This is going to allow them to compete or attempt to compete with Taiwan Semiconductor, which I hold. Um, and interestingly, Global Foundries just relocated their headquarters 20 minutes away from here. I'm in Saratoga Springs. They're in Malta. Hmm. Um, so, you know, Apple took all of their business away from Intel with their new M1 and M2 chips, which are partly made by Taiwan. Again, this will allow them to compete. So I think they have to try to do the deal to get, you know, to get back in the game. A quick final word, Gina, on Intel. I completely agree. So Lido Advisors owns Intel in the portfolio. It is our least favorite of our holdings because NVIDIA is such a strong competitor and, of course, Taiwan Semi on the foundries. But I agree with Todd. They have to make that play if they're going to stay in this game. Our least favorite. <laughs> and if you look at anyway, let's talk about some Apple, because even though we're talking about Intel in these rather less than glowing terms, Apple's actually surprised, uh, trailing Intel in its performance year to date. So we've got the earnings coming out next week. Gina, I'll start with you on the stock. Are investors, you know, OK, giving it this pause? Uh, is it a, a kind of the pause that refreshes or are earnings themselves seen as a bit of a headwind here? Well, so, you know, it's a big question because they've just gone so long in their product cycle. But what you're seeing is this weird, this demand for legacy phones that's actually helping string out this uh, this cycle, uh, this kind of iPhone 12 cycle. And I think that is going to benefit them. We own Apple in our portfolio. And so, you know, we still think that there's something there. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's a story that has been not as strong and the price reflects that. And John, what would you add about Apple and what, you know, it's it's in a weird way a transition year. You know, they've done quite well from pandemic demand, I guess, like some other stocks you'd put in that basket. The question is, you know, where are they heading now? They've had such a strong 2020 that in a way, you know, you got to look beyond the year to date on Apple to get a sense of how it's done if you're comparing it to Intel or, or Microsoft or whatever. Uh, but I think, you know, particularly when it comes to the transition to the M1 chip, they haven't transitioned their entire line yet, but Adobe just announced some major products, including Premiere, that are now native on M1. That's going to be important for demand. So how Apple talks about that rollout to the extent that they do, uh, to the extent that they're cautious about the flooding in China where so much of the assembly for the iPhone takes place. I think it's interesting. They haven't yet updated the iPhone SE, perhaps to make sure that they have enough chips to make higher margin phones. All of that, you know, kind of color commentary that they have around chip supply and the timing of their launches later in the year is going to be important. And then put alongside that the refreshes in the Apple Watch and AirPods, which have been such big money makers for them. It's going to be a big fall and potentially a big fall for Apple because they've set themselves up well so far with the iPhone 12 and the 5G. All right. So, Todd, we'll give you the last word on all of this. Apple, love it. Love it. Uh, Largest holding in my portfolio besides NVIDIA for individual stock holdings. Totally agree with what John was saying. This 5G super cycle is really beginning to materialize. The revenues are up 50% year over year. Um, Anecdotally, I was on the beach in Long Beach Island two weeks ago. On the 5G phone, I was getting two gigabyte download speed. I'm paying for business internet here. I don't even get that. We could live stream from the beach. It's unbelievable. (laughs) So this, this 5G, this is real. And they're generating massive amounts of free cash flow, and they're plowing that into stock buybacks. Uh, they could produce $100 billion in free cash flow uh, next year, and that is going into share buybacks. Uh, the gross margins are running like 37 39%. Um, you know, they've just bumped up to 42.5%, so the margins are getting better. Uh, I know the stock is underperforming, but look what it's done over the last five years. 
uh, another one like Microsoft, you just have to own it. Well, now we have to see you on that beach and compare for ourselves the quality of the signal <laughs> and do our channel checks. Todd Gordon, Jesus Sanchez, John Ford, thank you all very, very much. Walking us through some of these Dow components today. Coming up, our munis, the big money play. One strategist says, yes, they are the best bet for high net worth investors looking for a tax haven right now. We'll ask him why next. Plus, shares of Alaska Air are trading higher after reporting a smaller than expected second quarter loss and a profit for the month of June. We'll speak exclusively with the CEO about the quarter, COVID, and the airline's plan to add more flights in the second half of the year. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The prospect of higher taxes is pushing many high net worth investors into muni bonds. Municipal tax-exempt ex- tax bond funds saw record inflows of nearly $57 billion in the first half of the year. Now, that figure is nearly $10 billion higher than the previous six-month record set back in 2019. And my next guest says we should expect it to continue. Joining me now is Dave Rosenberg, president, chief economist, and strategist at Rosenberg Research. Dave, we don't actually talk to you about munis that much. So uh, it's kind of nice to take a different tack here, although I'm definitely going to ask you about rates more broadly. But seriously, on this uh, subject, how attractive are they for investors? Well, I, I think that uh, the premise of the report that I published was really uh, a relative value trade um, because nothing is trading at any of these levels, including the stock market. Uh, if interest rates, I'm talking about in the treasury market, were as low as they are right now. Uh, so what we did was uh, we went through Uh, All the different parts of what's called spread product. So we went through high yield and investment grade corporates, asset backs, uh, mortgage backs, uh, credit cards, uh, the whole gamut. And we actually found that in the muni space, it's actually the only part uh, of the non-treasury segment uh, of the bond market uh, that's trading uh, at interest rate spreads uh, off the government bond market uh, that's higher than they've been in the past. So it was really... um, more a relative value trade uh, that they're basically trading off of treasuries much more attractively uh, than all their competitors in the credit space. Is there concern? I mean, right now, it seems like if anything, state and local governments are flush with cash because I keep seeing these headlines about, you know, California and New Jersey and they're returning, you know, money Mm -hmm. to taxpayers and all this different stuff. Um, Is there some longer term concern? I don't know if immunities are typically a five year product, but concern about the, um, you know, soundness of these funds. Is that why the spread would be higher? Uh, well, I think a lot of it, Kelly, was because uh, the muni market got 
absolutely smoked, uh, you know, during the pandemic uh, and in the aftermath. I mean, everybody thought that the housing market uh, was going to implode, that uh, municipal, state, and local government revenues uh, were going to tank. Uh, and so what we found out since is that, uh, you know, when you consider where they get a lot of their revenues is from property taxes. Well, look at what home prices are, are doing. I mean, we got the, the housing data today. It, it resale prices are up more than 20%. Um, so the the revenues are are just going so much stronger. I mean, people talk about look, you're, you're buying core equities right now because everybody's talking about how strong the profit streams are. Well, look at the revenue streams. So they're bringing that in. On top of that, you know, there was a huge gift uh, from Joe Biden in March um, because part of the fiscal package was that 350 billion dollars uh, of federal government transfers to state and local governments. Um, and at the same time, it's very interesting to see that they're still holding the line on costs um, so that even as the economy has come back, uh, when you're taking a look at employment uh, in state and local, and it is a very labor intensive part of the economy, employment is still down more than 5% uh, from where it was pre-pandemic. Um, so if you're taking a look at state and local governments, as you would a corporation, in terms of the revenues they're bringing in, benchmarked against the costs, uh, their their income statement is looking phenomenal. Interesting. I just don't think it's fully priced in because when you measure where their spreads are relative to their history compared to other parts of the spread product market, uh, I still think this thing has a way to go. So let me ask you one final question. We don't have much time left, but that maybe could kind of be of interest both to muni investors and the investing public more broadly. Do you think the 10-year benchmark yield should be down here around 1.2% for a considerable period of time? Well, uh, I actually, along with Scott Minard and some others, uh, were actually, when, when the yields got to 175 on the 10-year, uh, I was in my daily saying, this is overdone, and we're going to get down towards 1%, uh, which we almost did. Um, so do I think that bond yields should be where they are right now? Uh, I know that people are going to say, well, inflation's too high, but I think inflation is going to come down more than people think next year. But I think more, um, more to the case on the 10 years, I think the real rate's going to go more negative because I think actually third quarter GDP growth is going to come in close to zero. And I'm looking at a consensus that's still 7%. Hmm. N nothing I can do is going to get me close to 7% third quarter growth. So I think that as the economic surprise indices come down, you're going to find that the 10-year Treasury note yield probably is going to go back and retest those lows of last week, if not go lower. So I'm actually quite bullish on the Treasury market right now. Wow. All right, Dave, thank you uh, for your perspective, as always. Really appreciate it. Dave Rosenberg with Rosenberg Research. Coming up, this stock is trading at an all-time high after delivering an earnings beat. We will dig into what's behind the move next. Plus, the meme stocks are on the move again, and we'll show you the latest trading action and how the shorts are faring. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's just gone negative again. It's been struggling to fight back into positive territory all morning. It barely is hanging on there. It's fluctuating right back and forth at the moment. The S&P's up four points. The Nasdaq is up 42. So there's a little bit more decisive energy, at least at Nasdaq this morning, with a three-tenths percent gain. Tech and healthcare are leading the pack, as you might imagine. Financials and energy are lagging. There's the sector picture. Tech up six-tenths of a percent. Financials a much more notable decliner with a one percent drop. For the individual movers, we have Texas Instruments down after earnings. Results beat estimates. But the company warned they're still worried about the global chip shortage and they don't know how long it could last. That's nearly a 5% drop for TXN. CSX is moving higher, though, after saying its profit more than doubled in the second quarter. Shares are up about 4%. Chipotle is extending its record run following Tuesday's big earnings beat. Those shares adding nearly 2%. Again, they're up 14.5% just this week, trading once again at an all-time high. It's its best week since last April. Let's go over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Northern California wildfires have crossed state lines into Nevada, prompting new evacuation orders for residents in the area. More than 1,200 firefighters are battling the fire that's already consumed nearly 200 square miles of forest. Massive flooding continues in central China as local officials raise the death toll there to 33. Tens of thousands of people are still being evacuated while rescue teams are being sent in to ferry residents to safety. And on the news, as the heavy rain rages on in China, officials are estimating nearly 3 million people are still affected and the economic losses could reach $200 million. First Energy has agreed to a $230 million penalty for bribing two former politicians. This is according to charges released today. The Ohio-based electric company is accused of paying millions of dollars in kickbacks to help pass a $1 billion bailout. And Guinea is officially pulling out of the Tokyo Olympics over concerns of a resurgence of COVID variants. It means that five athletes from the African nation will miss the games. Guinea joins North Korea as the only other country to withdraw. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, kickoff is what, tomorrow night? Uh, at this point, the opening ceremonies were held banks. Shares of Alaska Air are climbing today after the company reported stronger than expected results. We're talking about about a 1.5% gain. We're going to talk to the CEO about the numbers, travel demand, and more in an exclusive interview right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Welcome back. Shares of Alaska Air are moving higher today after the company posted a smaller than expected loss and beat revenue expectations. The stock has outperformed some of its biggest peers, including United, Delta and JetBlue. For more on these results and the future of air travel, let's bring in Alaska Air CEO Ben Minicucci with our own Phil LeBeau. Phil? Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, Ben, the spike in the stock in the middle of the day came during your guys' uh, analyst conference call. I think it's when you guys said that you expect to be fully back to levels beyond 2019 sooner than expected. Paint a picture for the second half of this year, if you could. And are you worried about any impact from the Delta variant slowing down the growth that you're seeing? Well, yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a great second quarter, and I have to give credit to the people of Alaska Airlines. It's just, uh, just a great performance. Uh, you know, we were close to break even. We beat the industry on, on pre-tax uh, uh, margins in the second quarter. And as we look beyond, you know, the third quarter looks strong. We're, we're projecting uh, double-digit uh, pre-tax profits in the third quarter, single high digits in the fourth quarter. And, uh, I mean, the question on the Delta variant, the question is we don't know. Uh, what we're seeing right now is no impact to our forward-looking bookings. Uh, but one thing that we've done in Alaska has really been prudent in how we deploy capacity. We're always trying to match capacity and demand. 
so we're going we're gonna to watch this Delta variant closely, and, uh, and hopefully uh, our momentum is going to continue strong towards the end uh, to the second half of the year. Ben, to meet that uh, added demand, you announced today that you guys are going to be bringing back 10 Airbus aircraft to meet that need for more passengers, more flights. I'm curious, during the pandemic, we saw a number of cities, say Boise, say Austin, Texas, other places in the western half of the U.S. became very popular. You've added flights to those cities. Does that continue? Do you think that lasts or do you look at that as saying that was unique to the period we were in because of the pandemic? You know, uh, Phil, I, I think that's not just unique to the pandemic. You know, we've added 50 new markets uh, since March of 2020. And I think people are just hungry to go to sun destinations and outdoor destinations. We've rent back our Hawaii franchise. We're back to, to over 30 flights a day from our West Coast hubs. Like you said, we added Boise and Austin. We increased flights to Tampa. Uh, we've expanded Cancun. And uh, Jackson Hole is another one that we've added that's doing extremely well. Uh, so uh, I, we're bullish on, on those uh, sun destinations and, and outdoor destinations, and we're so uniquely positioned here in the Pacific Northwest and, and the West Coast to go to those destinations. Ben, it's Kelly here in the studio. Thanks again for uh, joining us. Just have a question about the mask mandate that you still have in place. Um, how much of a concern are airline incidents to you as a CEO uh, dealing with uh, flight attendants? You know, we've talked to a lot who have a lot of morale and safety concerns, and obviously a lot of executives don't want the mandate itself to become a lightning rod for these kinds of issues. And with Delta on the rise again now, it seems like uh, that could continue for some time. How are you likely to handle this in the months ahead? Yeah, it's a great question, Kelly. In fact, I was just poked my head into a flight attendant recurrent training. They're right here beside me. And we just talked about that. And uh, we're fortunate. We have fantastic flight attendants who uh, deal with the issue in a kind, caring fashion. Uh, but I think, uh, I mean, the answer to the question is we'll wait and see. I hope science and data dictate uh, the outcome of, of the mask mandate. I think what the industry has shown is that, you know, the air on board an airplane is extremely safe. You know, it gets recirculated every three minutes. We've got the help of filters. The air flows from top to bottom. So uh, I think we're hopeful as an industry that um, as, uh, as this gets reviewed, science and data will dictate the outcome of whether masks continue or not. Ben, you mentioned going and taking a look and, and poking your head into that flight attendant training seminar. How is staffing going? Because a number of the carriers uh, have said, look, we ramped up service so quickly, we just did not have the staffing that we needed uh, as we were bringing back flights. Are you concerned about staffing and being able to find the talent that you need for the second half of this year and, and going into next year? Yeah, great question, Phil. You know, first I'll start by saying our operations team have done a fantastic job. You know, in terms of performance, on-time performance and completion rates, we were near the top in the industry for performance. So our operations team did a great job. So in terms of staffing, uh, we have seen some uh, some issues in, in, in some places across the country. I think a lot of companies, our industry is, is feeling some of this shortage. Well, I'll say in particular for Seattle, it is a hot labor market here in Seattle. So the area we're seeing the most constraint is at the entry-level labor area, you know, particularly for our ramp. So we've got a lot of mitigations in place. I feel confident we're going to get through it. Uh, but I think we have to see what happens in the fourth quarter, you know, as, you know, the stimulus effects go away, the unemployment goes away. I think, uh, I think the labor market will find its water level. So I, I, I think we're going to be uh, waiting, you know, just a little bit to see where this thing lands before we make any huge structural changes.
All right. Ben Minicucci, CEO of Alaska Airlines, joining us. Kelly, uh, I can't say this enough. If you were listening to their conference call today, when they said, look, we expect to be back above the 2019 levels sooner than expected, they were expecting next summer sooner, that's when the stock moved higher. So I think a lot of people are watching that stock today and the commentary from Ben and his team. It's a great point, and when there's not a lot of great news (laughs) to look forward to on that front lately, Phil, I think it's especially welcome. Uh, Thank you so much, our Phil LeBeau with the CEO of Alaska Air, Ben Minicucci. Some of the meme stocks are lower today, but they're all bouncing back this week. We'll get the movers and the impact on the shorts next. And be sure to stick around, because at 2 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing a special report on the ESG movement. We'll talk to some of the biggest players in the space, the rise of greenwashing, and how to regulate it all. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. A lot of the meme stocks are lower today, but they've actually staged a bit of a comeback this week. Christina Partsenevelis is here to dig into the moves and also the hits. That means the short sellers are taking, Christina. Yeah, because getting into this meme mania definitely ain't for the faint of heart. And despite today's drop in price, some short sellers are still getting hit hard. So just today, we're seeing the share price of AMC down 5%, GameStop down uh, just above 3%. You have other Reddit favorites like Context Logic, as well as BlackBerry, all slower. And these are just a few that I was able to pick right now. But despite the volatility and pressure from the online Reddit crowd, aka apes as they call themselves online, many short sellers are still locked in for the ride. Over 13% of GameStop float is shorted. These are numbers as of today showing that a large group of investors are still betting the stock price will fall. You also have AMC's float that sees double-digit shorts. And over 22% of Bed Bath & Beyond is shorted. So what does this mean for the short sellers? And do they stand to lose a lot should they realize their losses? Well, in 2021 alone, GME shorts right now, so GameStop, are down $6.3 billion in market-to-market losses. Again, they have to realize them. For AMC, it's almost $4 billion of potential losses. And then Bed Bath & Beyond, the short sellers could face a shortfall of about a $1 billion in realized losses. So the volatility for GME, AMC, continues as the drive to push these stocks higher stems from short-selling practices like the use of dark pools and naked shorting, which is short sellers that uh, don't register their stocks as borrowed. So joining the meme mania from either side of the trade means substantial risk should not be ignored, Kelly. That's a great point. Come on over, uh, if you please, because I think the question also is not just how the trade bears out, but can the trade itself fundamentally change the dynamics for these companies? So we've seen, for example, AMC, where they're trying to do share offerings to shore up their future. Trying GameStop to. maybe That's a the little key, bit right? Behind. Trying. They weren't successful the last one. So how does it shaking out? It, well, you have the resistance from shareholders. So with AMC, they're probably in a more dire position financially than GME going forward, GameStop, because GameStop has said they're going to ha- have a turnaround plan. They want to focus on online sales. They want to be, as Ryan Cohen said, the Amazon of gaming. And so for them, that could be a potential if they actually get that plan in place. They're still facing about $445 million in in just their leases. So they have a heavy, heavy physical footprint that they're going to have to reduce. AMC, the problem is where do we see that company, let's say, you know, 12 months from now, Absolutely. when we, we really factor in how much people are going into the movie theaters, and especially with the simultaneous yes. uh, showing. The, you have people looking at the box office figure saying yeah. they're not on the rapid upswing that you might expect. Looking have at, you been to a movie theater lately? I'm not the best gauge, oh, but right. I haven't I been. Went to, I went to see like F9, five years. and it was completely empty j- at, at an evening on a Tuesday night, which is cheap night. And you would expect it, <laughs> not only because it's cheap night. Well, I like just, to go on cheap night. But, but yeah. the excitement of people are finally able to go back for an outing, yeah. and I feel like if you're not going to get that 
excitement now that can't portend well. So we'll see. We'll see you in a moment as well. Oh, yeah. Christina, <laughs> still ahead. Stocks are trying to eke out a third straight day of gains after Monday's sell-off. We'll get the names one strategist says are poised for a rally next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. A mixed picture for stocks today, but all three averages are higher for the week. Recouping Monday's sell-off declines and now within 1% of record highs. Tech leading the pack today with Microsoft and Alphabet hitting all-time highs. But my next guest is saying don't chase the growth stock bounce. Buy into the beaten down sectors instead. David Katz is here to make his case. He's chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, at the top of the program, you know, people are just glowing about Microsoft. And why should they, you know, not stick with names like those that just appear to be perennial winners? Well, in our value portfolio, we own Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple. They've done extraordinarily well. In looking forward for the next six to 12 months, we don't think that's going to be what drives the portfolio upside. You've had a rolling correction over the last six months or the last two or three months more specifically. Uh, we think a lot of the groups that, had, that have already corrected are poised to be the next leg up. What drove them early in the year? we think is going to drive them for the next six months. So we'd be buying into the weakness of financials. Uh, we think the group is very well positioned to do well. The stocks just gave back about a third of their gains. But David, didn't we speak about this a, a little while back when this was all predicated on interest rates going back up? And I don't know if you heard Dave Rosenberg a moment ago, but he thinks they won't be. Well, we think if interest rates don't go up, the financials will do well, but not as well. If interest rates do go up, and we actually fully expect them to go up over the next six months, we think the financials are going to do exceptionally well. We think the economy is very strong. We don't think that the Delta COVID virus is going to derail the economy. Uh, so we think you're going to have strong uh, overall economic growth. We think the employment numbers are going to get progressively better. Inflation is out there, and we think that rates are going to start to move up. The Fed ultimately is going to have to address this, but rates are at an exceptionally low level. Right now, you could borrow money from the government for 30 years, or the government can borrow for you for 30 years at 1.8%. That's absurd to be uh, investing money for that period of time with that lower rate. We think you can do a lot better in a lot of stocks. Dividend payers have had a very significant correction. We think that's a great place to put money rather than in uh, either these high-growth, high-PE stocks or in bonds. So, but, pro but you think, properly speaking, we should call a company like Microsoft a value stock? It, well, when we bought it a few years ago, it, it was a value stock. Now it, it's, it's pretty fully priced. We still own it because we think their prospects are very good, but we're far less enthusiastic about it today than we've been. It's cheaper than a lot of technology companies, but, but clearly it's not a technology company, uh, not a uh, value stock right now. There are some technology companies that still fall into the value realm. Cisco okay. uh, is a very good company. We think it's a second derivative reopening play. It's at 16 or 17 times earnings. Fiserv also is a technology company at a reasonable valuation. So there are companies out there that meet that criteria. But by and large, we think technology is pretty expensive. David Katz, thank you for your take today. We really Thanks appreciate David Katz with Matrix Advisors. Yep. Well, it's one of the hottest investing trends right now, but some of the companies in ESG ETFs, like Big Oil, for instance, don't seem like they would fit the bill. We're going to dig into this seeming disconnect next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. As we get ready for our big Power Lunch special on ESG investing in just a moment, we first want to show you some of the biggest funds and ETFs in this space. And this is quite the alphabet soup, I have to say. You've got things like the Vanguard Social Index Fund, ticker VFTAX. 
It's up about 16 percent this year. It's top holdings. This is where people get kind of upset on the ESG front. The top holdings include Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Facebook. We're going to talk about the G with companies like Facebook in just a moment. Anyway, the iShares ESG Aware Fund, ticker ESGU, it's another one up 15 percent this year. So, again, similar performance. Top holdings, a familiar list, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet. Alphabet, again, raises a lot of governance concerns we're going to talk about. The Parnassus Core Equity Fund is another major ESG ETF, also up 16% this year. It's got $28 billion in assets and a five-star Morningstar rating among its top holdings. Microsoft, Danaher, Comcast, which does raise some governance questions, and CME, and the Nuveen ESG Small Cap ETF. It's up 13% in 2021, so you can already see the disparity based on whether you go small with the biggest guys and so forth. Anyway, Daring Ingredi- Darling Ingredients, Wex, Bright Horizons, and Toro are its top holdings, so a little bit less familiar there. GameStop, also makes the cut. We're going to delve much more into all of this in just a moment here. So that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.